When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Christy Lemire, who's a triple threat. She uh, writes film criticism for RogerEbert.com, co-hosts Breakfast All Day podcast, tweets at Christy Lemire, uh, and they're going to uh, get right into the reviews this week. We begin with Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, a sequel to Disney's 2014 film Maleficent. Angelina Jolie is back. Elle Fanning as well reprising their roles as the evil fairy Maleficent and her granddaughter Aurora. Their relationship here strained when a prince proposes to Aurora. Philip asked me to marry him. Poor thing. He'll recover. My answer was yes. No. Yes. No. I wasn't really asking. Nor was I. What's next? You'll turn him into a goat. Hmm. Disney's Maleficent Mistress of Evil. Uh, the film is directed by Joachim Roning. Christy, what'd you think? So this is one of two sequels we have this week that I'm not really sure why they exist. There's no need for this at all. I have some idea why. <laughs> A little bitty bitty one. Um, this is almost not campy enough. The clip we just played made the movie sound kind of light and kind of jokey. You have Angelina Jolie. You also have Michelle Pfeiffer as the queen, the mother of Prince Philip, whom Aurora is going to marry. Both venerable, just formidable female screen forces. And I almost wish they were allowed to be campier and vampier in meeting each other. The central conflict here is that you have Maleficent meeting Prince Philip's parents. And it's like like a weird jokey version of Meet the Fockers, but with genocide. There's like <laughs> there's like a whole genocide subplot as to what is really going on here in the kingdom with, with the kingdom and the Moors and the fairies and the conflict over the territory. Yeah. It's a weird mix of stuff. Um, there's a lot going on here, like a lot more than there should be. At one point, my son, who's almost 10, turned to me at the giant climax where all the battles are going on at the same time and all the subplots are tying up and they're jumping back and forth and there's red dust exploding into the sky. My son turns to me, he goes, I have absolutely no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> and I'm like, I kind of do, but I don't blame you. So it's confusing. Yeah. What do you think, Wade? I, I'm, I'm less enthused. Um, Sleeping Beauty has a very treasured place in my household. My wife loves it. My daughter loves it. So they saw Maleficent, the first Maleficent, for the first time just the other day and were a little bit taken back by the revisionism of it. Uh, that they're trying to redeem Maleficent as a character. They take King Stefan and make him a bit of a bad guy. It really kind of upends the fairy tale, but it doesn't completely rewrite it. This is not only unnecessary, it's a betrayal of the entire lore. This takes everything that they, they left intact in the first film and just says, you know what, let's just throw it all out. Let's just completely rewrite Sleeping Beauty and make everything that you thought you knew about it completely false, and it'll be a whole new story. Um, if you love Sleeping Beauty as a story and understand all of and appreciate all of the nuances to it and the messages and the themes, 
you're going to be furious with this because this leaves it a complete wreckage. This just trowels it over for the sake of money just to have an unnecessary sequel to invent some new subplot about tolerance that the first film really already did. And and then with the, this horrible CGI marveled uh, kind of finale battle that goes on forever, <laughs> basically looks just like the scene in the old Flash Gordon movie where the Hawkman <laughs> raid all the spaceships from Ming. It's the same scene, only done less well. Yeah, with I was going to say that's a pretty cool scene. <laughs> it's a cool scene in Flash Gordon. Yeah. Here, here it's just overwrought, and they they lean on the CGI excessively, and it's just a completely unnecessary movie. There's a spindle. That's about the only tie you have. The first, yeah. I will say, the costume design is extraordinary. It's exquisitely detailed what Michelle Pfeiffer gets to wear and then all the really cool stuff that Angelina Jolie gets to wear. It reminded me of like Natalie Portman's ballet costumes, yeah. the Rodarte stuff she wore in Black Swan. Anyway, but not worth seeing for that. All right. <laughs> Maleficent Mistress of Evil is rated PG. Angelina Jolie, Elle Fanning, Michelle Pfeiffer star. It's rated PG in wide release. Zombieland, Double Tap, the second sequel to which Christy was just referring. Woody Harrelson, Emma Stone, Jesse Eisenberg are back with Abigail Breslin. Ruben Fleischer directs, and it's written by Dave Callahan, Rhett Reese, and Paul Wernick. Wade. Yeah, there's really no reason why I should like this, but I do. <laughs> And I readily admit that they, 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 what they did here that was smart that they didn't do on Maleficent, they brought the original creative team back, same director, same writers. They brought them all back, same, you know, everyone from the cast, and they kind of put them through the same paces all over again. And and a, and a decade later, after hundreds of intervening hours of other zombie movies and zombie television, um, it doesn't feel fresh anymore. However. I do appreciate that the cast is still having fun. They enjoyed getting back together. Emma Stone can do no wrong. She overrides all of my my neurological reaction to Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> and Zoe Deutsch, one of a, a handful of people who has kind of a semi-cameo in it, she has a, an interesting recurring character as this stereotypical dumb blonde that she adds somehow more dimension to. She makes her dumber and blonder than anyone's ever seen. I thought her banter with Emma Stone was a lot of fun. So it kept me going on a character level, even if nothing else about it was worthwhile. Christy? This is simultaneously more and less, like more characters, more action, more plot. More but, stick. But it's like, right, and it's a lot of the same kind of um, meta fourth wall breaking. It's a zombie movie that knows it's a zombie movie. There is wall-to-wall Jesse Eisenberg narration explaining everything to us, explaining things that should be obvious, but also explaining things that we are seeing with our own two eyes <laughs> on the screen, but not in a way that's like amusing or insightful at all. Um, Zoe Deutsch is adorable, I agree. And they put her in these like pink, juicy couture sweat and a Von Dutch tank top because she is like a 2009 time cap under herself. <laughs> yeah, they're all just doing the same thing all over again. And I just wonder why. Like, it's a whole lot of wheel spinning. There is a thing you should stick around for in the credits, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. All the way to the end. <laughs> Zombieland Double Tap from Ruben Fleischer, the director. It's rated R in wide release. The hallucinatory tale with just two characters, The Lighthouse stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. Robert Eggers is the director and co-screenwriter with his brother, Max Eggers Christie. I love this movie so much. One of my absolute favorites this year, and I was really looking forward to it. From the first time I saw the trailer, it made my heart like jump out of my chest because it looked so beautiful and so weird, and it's everything I wanted it to be, so I'm really excited about it. So Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe play Lighthouse Keepers. And they are stuck together on this mysterious remote island off the coast of New England. It's the late 1800s. And it's just the two of them. And they're really different people. 
And the longer they stay, the longer they're stuck there, they lose their grasp on their sanity. And you begin to wonder whether you are still sane while you're watching it, because you don't know what's a hallucination, what's real, what's what they've imagined, what's just, you know, what's actually happening in this bizarre out there place. It is shot in exquisitely gorgeous black and white. It's so beautiful. And um, you can tell it was a very physical and emotionally demanding performance for them both. Um, these are actors who take chances and they are taking chances together. And it is thrilling to watch. I didn't get a chance to ask you, Brent. I, I thought I might have read several weeks ago that the aspect ratio was different. Is it's, that? It's an, it is. Yeah, it's an Academy aspect ratio. It's not ratio. Academy. Okay. It's an old, uh, It's one one nineteen. One nineteen. <laughs> it's not even a. It's Academy. not. It's real close. It's almost a total box. It's okay. Real close. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it I, looks I, like it though. I was I was trying to count while I was I was like do, using using an optical uh, counting. I thought it was Academy. Wow, amazing. That, that adds to the feeling of like it being old and like a like a little time capsule. Wow. Well, I I I admire it. I don't particularly love it. I think it's very much the same thing that Eggers and his brother were doing with The Witch, which is taking a very constrained period horror concept and doing kind of a resume piece with it. The sound design is amazing. The photography is amazing. The the art direction is amazing. Technically, it is an extraordinary achievement, but it's still kind of a, a little mini Twilight Zone experiment. It's still kind of a conceit. And that's that has me a little bit worried that perhaps they don't want to exit this very small and contained world where they have complete control, that they want to keep making kind of quasi-Polanski movies. It's basically repulsion with two guys in a lighthouse instead of Captain Deneuve in her apartment. Um, but it, it there's something in it. Perhaps that's the world we live in now where if you're an auteur and you want complete control, you have to live in this world. You don't get bigger budgets. Right. Maybe he wants to live in that world. He may. He's really good at that world. Yes. <laughs> so it is shot in one nineteen one that uh, was apparently used by Fox, particularly at the early sound era. Mm. And so that's what that's <laughs> apparently that's uh, the New York Times. Uh, ben Kennigsberg says he explains <laughs> that about the film. So uh, we appreciate that. Again, the film is The Lighthouse. Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe star, Robert Eggers direct and co-wrote with. Max Eggers, it's rated R, and you can see it at the Arclight Hollywood and the Landmark in West Los Angeles. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. Many more movies to come, including uh, Jojo Rabbit and Parasite. Good to have you with us on Film Week here on 89.3 KPECC. Back with more with Christy and Wade momentarily. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. So good to have you with us, Larry Mantle, with our critics, Christy Lemire and Wade Major. 
Next up is Jojo Rabbit, a comedic drama from writer-director Taika Waititi. Uh, Roman Griffin Davis stars as a boy living in World War II Germany whose imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. That's the voice of Waititi in, in, uh, as the rabbit, is that right? No, he's Hitler. He's Hitler. Or Hitler, okay, yes. all right. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit is the film we're talking about. Uh, uh, so Waititi in the cast as well, Roman Griffin, Davis stars. Wade, please start us. I kind of feel like a proud papa. It was, it was 2004 <laughs> when I was on the uh, AFI shorts jury with Ray McKinnon and Shorey Agdashlu, and we chose as best short that year a little short called uh, Two Cars, One Night by a young filmmaker named Taika Waititi. Went on to get an Oscar nomination. Here he is. So I'd like to believe that, that we played some <laughs> small role in getting him here because this is one of my favorite films of the year. Um, it's an amazing film. It returns him to the sensibilities of uh, the hunt for the wilder people as opposed to Thor Ragnarok, which is sort of him doing his, his studio thing. But these are his sensibilities, a quirky way of looking at the world, but with uh, kind of a razor edge of observation underneath it. The way that Searchlight is promoting this is it's kind of like a kind of like a World War II uh, version of a Wes Anderson movie. And it, it has a little bit of that at the beginning, but it, it goes from the absurd to the poignant in a very, very acute way. And that's what's so smart about the film, because it's a sleight of hand. It doesn't let you know where it's going, and it takes you in a direction that's completely unexpected and totally rewarding. And uh, it's it's so unique, and it's so unusual, and it's just such a refreshing breath of incredibly fresh air. I, I, I can't think of a better film this week. Christy. I'm amazed this movie exists. And I <laughs> yeah. know that Taika Waititi tried to make it for like a decade. And then finally, yeah. it just you know had to be that he had to be the one to play Hitler. And it's hilarious. Like, it's, it's such a fine line that this film walks. And he pulls off these incredible tonal swings. Mm-hmm. Like, they're acrobatic. And I don't know how he did it because... In the beginning, off the top, you are laughing hysterically over and over and over again at this goofy 10-year-old boy's image of like Hitler as his imaginary best friend. And he, he seems like a little kid. And so the idea of like de- predi- depicting Hitler in that way is just so daring and could have gone so wrong. By the end, for the last 20 minutes, I was sobbing off and on for the last 20 minutes. And so wow. to go from one extreme to the other that's is incredible. That's the genius of it. And that's, yeah. But that's the way he looks at the world. Right. That's how he sees the world. There's such truth to it. The little boy who stars in it, Roman Griffin Davis, is tremendous because um, he has to hold the whole thing together right? mm-hmm. opposite all these you know really established stars. Sam Rockwell has a good time playing a, a goofy Nazi leader. Um, Scarlett Johansson is completely lovely as the mom trying to hold it all together. Again, tremendous costume and production design here. I love did, this movie Did too. they film it in Waititi's New Zealand or in Europe? Oh, that's a good question. It's somewhere in Europe. It's a town that was still intact after World War II that still looked like that. Okay. It's, yeah. it, it, and, and I have to say, too, you know... The Czech Republic. Okay. My, my mother grew up in Hitler's Germany. She was 10 years old when, when they were all pushed into the Hitler Youth and went through all that stuff. And everything she told me is reflected in those early scenes in this movie, which was it was the dumbest thing we had ever done. It was ridiculous. 
and the absurdism of it that lingered with her even into old age, what an outrageous, just an absurd practice, that has never been communicated in any other movie. Taika gets it here. It's a farce. The whole thing is a farce. And even though it's tied to one of the great tragedies of history, you can process those two things at the same time. And well, it's an amazing, like Christy says, is, it's an amazing balancing act. Is, is totally, um, does it bear any resemblance to Chaplin's The Great Dictator? In some way, I would say, a little bit. It's, 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 it, it, it try, Chaplin walks a similar fine line, yeah. but Chaplin doesn't go to the same emotional place Taika does here. So in terms of depicting Hitler as a clown, um, uh, and that there's certainly that aspect to it, there I think it has a similarity. But it, but even Chaplin didn't think that he could cross the line the way that Taika does here. And even comparing it to like Mel Brooks comes a Mel little close. A little close, but, but it, still not there. But this has a far deeper emotional poignancy to it than any yeah. Mel Brooks film does. True. We're talking about Jojo Rabbit, new film from director, writer Taika Watiti, Roman Griffin Davis, Scarlett Johansson, Watiti himself star in the film. It's rated PG-13, and it's at selected theaters. Parasite was released last week, the South Korean film that has been a critic's favorite at the many film festivals that it's been playing. We wanted to give a chance for you to hear our critics uh, talk about it. Wade, Parasite. Uh, absolutely extraordinary achievement on every conceivable level, uh, level, even though I think it's still a little bit of a cheat. Um, he, he is, <laughs> look, he's one of our great, I mean, from the host to uh, Snowpiercer uh, to, to Okia, I mean, he is one of our great global filmmakers. Bong he, Joon-ho. Bong Joon-ho has an unbelievable command of visuals, of pace, of all of the technical aspects of storytelling. He gets out of his actors unbelievable performances. It's an amazing, it deals with class, uh, as in many other stories. And it is uh, that he tells where you have this this uh, basically this impoverished family of grifters who ingratiate themselves into the servant conditions of a wealthy family and all of the very bizarre things that transpire thereafter. But it, it still it still tre- plays with a lot of these contrivances that are very obvious. He makes things happen so that he can do something that he wants to do. And so even though I admire it, I still see him... You felt pull- a little manipulated. I, I see him pulling the levers. This is the best movie of the year <laughs> at, at this point in time. I've got a couple out there that I still have to see yeah. that might unseat it. But um, again, kind of like Jojo Rabbit, this is a tonal marvel because it begins as this really dark, dark, sharp satire of economic disparity, of haves and have-nots. You do have these two families that are mirroring each other, mother, father, sister, brother. And it slowly but surely becomes like almost a straight up horror film. And then the ending is just heartbreaking. And so to to go through all these extremes is exquisitely photographed and perfectly paced. And the stuff that Wade thinks is is manipulative, I thought was really cool. The way he would like set up certain pieces, certain dominoes to then fall down later on. I thought I I appreciated the the meticulous nature of that storytelling. I did did too. It just took me away from the characters. I was paying more attention to the directing than I was to the, the character interactions. And I wanted to fall more in with the characters but it is still look it is an amazing achievement all of my reservations notwithstanding there is not a better film all year in terms of a guy who knows what to do with the camera writer director bong joon ho of south korea the film is parasite rated r in select theaters uh the animated the adams family um by conrad vernon and greg tiernan was out last week as well still in theaters christy it's cute 
It's okay. Um, it's got this embarrassment of riches in terms of its voice cast. You have Oscar Isaac and Charlie Theron and Chloe Grace Moretz and Finn Wolfhard and Nick Kroll. It's the Adams Family in animated form. It's very family friendly. Um, the message here is extremely trite and pat. It's about um, people trying to fit in and all be like each other, but it's really important to just be yourself. And so the Adams Family lives on top of their hill and they're trying to fit in with the suburbia down at the bottom of the hill, but it's also really important to still be the weirdo that you are inside. And um, there's not much to it. It's if your kids want to see it, it's fine. The Adams Family, the new animated version, uh, is rated PG. It's in wide release. Also out in wide release last week, Will Smith starring in Ang Lee's Gemini Man. Christy? So I so appreciate that at this point in his career, Ang Lee is still messing with technology. He's still pushing it. I appreciate the instinct behind that. I appreciate the ambition behind that. Gemini Man, like Billy Lynn's long halftime walk a few years back, is shot in the higher frame rate, 120 frames per second, as opposed to the 24 we are accustomed to. That means the images are really incredibly sharp and bright, like more so than even you would see with the human eye, in a way that is so distracting. And like it's like an assault on your eyeballs, actually. Um, and maybe you get used to it, but like you shouldn't. So Will, Will Smith, <laughs> Will Smith runs into a younger version of himself. And I guess there's a great allegory in that, as Will Smith is now middle-aged, I suppose, like we all are. And uh, it's fine. Some of the action is fun. But again, it's really hard to get past the look of it. I don't think you're technically middle-aged yet. But that's, <laughs> I have 47. 47 that's, is middle-aged. Yeah, not quite. Uh, Gemini <laughs> Man, the film, Will Smith, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Ang Lee is the director, and David Benioff, uh, Billy Ray, and Darren Lemke are the screenwriters. It's rated PG-13. Wait, do you have an opinion on that high frame rate? I don't like the look of it myself. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> and and it's a funny thing, too, because, you know, with the new iPhones, when you shoot video of your family, you can choose to use a higher frame rate there as well. And I find I don't even like higher frame rate video of my own child. <laughs> I like I like to, I like it a Abandon little softer. Abandon your own child after I, seeing it, it, There's something, it's what, it's what Christy says, there is something assaultive about the, yeah. the, the, the hyper-reality of it, yeah. Like I the don't lighting like is too flat and too hot and too bright. It's just, it, it looks it, fake. It's almost like that soap opera effect mm-hmm. you sometimes get with newer televisions that do the sort of auto-correction of the image. Motion and smoothing. Does, yeah, motion <laughs> smoothing. And it doesn't look real, uh, mm-hmm. e- even though you are getting many more frames uh, per second. We're talking about the um, t- uh, shooting technique on Gemini Man, which is rated PG-13 in wide release. Coming up, we'll hear what Wade and Christie think about The Cave, which is a documentary from Syria. Tell Me Who I Am, a British documentary, and Cyrano, My Love, a historical comedy from Belgium and France. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. We're so pleased to have you with you every week right here on 89.3. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Christy Lemire, Wade Major, our critics this week. And 
Next is the documentary from Syria, The Cave, which tells the story of uh, the Syrian doctor, Dr. Amani Balur. Christy? This film is just stunning, and it is a miracle that it got made, and it's a miracle that it got out to the world for us to see it, but I'm, I'm so glad that it is. Um, so director Faraz Fayyad, whose film Last Man in Aleppo from a couple of years back was an Academy terrific, Award nominee. Terrific, terrific film. Terrific film. He returns to his home of Syria to tell the story of this whole underground system of tunnels and caves, and in the middle of them is this hospital, which is run by women, by women doctors. And the main one that he follows is Dr. Amani, who you mentioned. And it's about how they just deal day in and day out with being just attacked and bombed and the carnage that they witness and just trying to survive, trying to keep people alive. Each new day is worse than the last. And Faraz Fayyad, to his credit, I don't know how he does it, but he has the presence of mind and the focus to keep shooting, to not turn away. It's unflinching in its depiction of the horrors that exist there. And it's um, unfortunately now even timelier than ever, but it, it's a fascinating study of the strength of women when they are allowed to display that strength in a situation like this. Women in a place of leadership, which is unusual. She's running this underground hospital. She is, with several other female doctors as well. And and so that in itself is remarkable. But, like, you see everything. You see how she's warm and how she's strict when she needs to be. You see her eventually collapse. And how would you not? It's It's stunning. It is the cave. Is it, the film? It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's shot over a number period, a period of several years, uh, in eastern Syria, where some pretty horrible stuff has happened. We can't obviously give you all of the historical details uh, about this because it'll give too much away in the film. But there is, there's a portion of the film about a half hour segment later on, which is almost purely visual. And if if you don't completely crumple down and cry, you don't have a heart. It just it it's it's a devastating film. The Cave, the documentary from Varaz Fayyad, uh, Oscar-winning documentarian. It's unrated at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. The documentary Tell Me Who I Am uh, follows 18-year-old identical twin Marcus, uh, who must help his twin Alex remember uh, his life uh, after Alex suffers a traumatic motorcycle accident. Ed Perkins, the director. Christy? This is also an incredible documentary, and it is about as you say, these two brothers, identical twins, living in a very wealthy home in England, um, this really serious motorcycle accident occurs, which wipes out pretty much all of the memory of one of the brothers. The only thing he does remember is that he has an identical twin. And that twin then helps him reconstruct what their life was like. Here are your parents. Here's where we live. Here's where we went on vacation. But what he did was reconstruct a totally fabricated life to protect his brother from the truth of the horrors of their childhood. And the way this film is constructed is this suspenseful mystery and eventually gives way to great catharsis and redemption. But you hear one brother's story and then the other brother's story, and then the two sit down opposite each other to finally share the truth of what happened, and it's heartbreaking. 
it's amazing. I mean, it was originally a book in the UK, and, but the book only went to a certain point. The filmmakers complete the story in uh, in a rather extraordinary way and a very bold way. Uh, yeah, the Ed Perkins is this is his feature directing debut, but he is a very experienced and seasoned filmmaker on British television, and uh, it, it shows. This is a very accomplished film in the Errol Morris style, where recreation is used to sort of complement what you see in the interviews and uh, and uh, the archival materials that they're able to put together. Um, but he doesn't do it the way that others typically have. If you look at something like Man on Wire, which is all recreation, or Thin Blue Line, which is substantially, this is this pulls back more than those. It doesn't try to influence what the, your perception of what they're saying, and it's really beautiful filmmaking. Tell Me Who I Am is at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica, and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, the film is unrated. Uh, the historical comedy Cyrano, My Love, is written and directed by Alexis Michalik. What do you think, Wade? I love this movie. This is one of my favorite films of the year as well. Uh, this is basically a French Shakespeare in love. This uh, this is based Michelique Alexis Michelique who wrote and directed it is a veteran French actor has never made a feature before never wrote a feature before but he did write a very successful play that this is based on called Edmund which is the story of how Edmund Rostand eventually succeeded overcame years of failure uh, and being supported by his wife with you know children that he could barely feed and how he became the toast of Europe with the greatest production in history in, in French theater Cyrano de Bergerac it's that story and it uh, he did, had a great success with the play here he blows it up big into a movie which is just great French filmmaking it's a period piece it's got costumes it's funny it's romantic. It has twists and turns. Wonderful cameos from other legendary figures of the era. Uh, all of it takes place in 1895 to 1897, and uh, it is just an absolute joy to watch. We're talking about Cyrano, My Love, uh, the French film at Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. The film is rated R. Christy, can you give us just a few seconds on Greener Grass, the comedy? I would love to, because this movie is nuts, and I totally dug it. It's this really focused, really exaggerated extreme satire of suburbia it is candy colored it is weird it is out there i laughed the whole way through it's right. ira 11 on lsd <laughs> <laughs> so opposite opinions of greener grass the comedy is at the landmark in west la jocelyn deboer and uh, don luby are the uh, stars as well as the writer directors of the unrated film well, earlier this week, we lost Robert Forster, the great character actor who passed away of brain cancer at the age of 78. He's one of my favorites. Great role in uh, Jackie Brown, uh, the Quentin Tarantino film. And Tarantino really brought Forster back to public attention. And I interviewed Forster prior to our film week screening of, of Jackie Brown. This goes back to 2017. And here, Forster talks about running into Quentin Tarantino in a West Hollywood cast. Cafe, starting the conversation that led to Tarantino's casting, Forster as bail bondsman Max Cherry. Forster was struggling. His career was at a low ebb. And I asked him how far down it was at the time and how he managed to move back up. Oh, I was catching crumbs that fell through the cracks. I was in the basement by then. <laughs> I, uh, I had four children and uh, two ex-wives and was trying to hold it together and... Uh, and, you know, there are moments at which you say to yourself, uh, do I have to find something new to do or do I uh, or do I get a chance to continue this? Am I going to have to quit being an actor? And I had an epiphany go, walking into a, a, the tennis park over on uh, 
on uh, Fountain Avenue, I said to myself, I watched Joe Stein over there gently hitting the ball against the wall. Joe Stein was 79 years old. He was a psychiatrist. He still had patience. He was still writing books, and he could beat me at tennis. All I had to do was get the ball to him, and he could put it anywhere on the court he wanted to. I would chase around. I said, that's the answer. Don't quit, Bob. If you quit, uh, you've got to think of something else to get good at and make a living at. If you don't quit, you still got a shot. Joe Stein is never quits. You can win it in the late innings if you don't quit. And then I said, yeah, but how are you going to get from the hole you're in to winning it in the late innings? And I said, you deliver the, your excellent best right now. That will give you the best shot of the best future you got coming and will give you that reward they always tell you you're going to get, the reward of self-respect. And the reward of satisfaction when you deliver your excellent best right now. And then I realized you got to have a good attitude for that. So it became my three-step program. Accept all things. It doesn't matter that you're not getting the good jobs anymore. Relax. Put it behind you. Accept it. It doesn't matter you're not getting the Winnebago anymore, Bob. It doesn't matter she doesn't love you anymore, Bob. Once you accept it, you are in position to deliver your excellent best. And when you deliver that excellent best, you know what they give you. They give you self-respect and satisfaction. And if you don't quit, you can win it in the late innings. And he sure did. Robert Forster, we lost him uh, just a few days ago. Great to have you with us for Film Week on KPCC.